it's very difficult oftentimes um, to get adequate enforcement of those code provisions because in most states the enforcement is controlled by the organized bar or agencies that aren't quite aligned with bar interests. So that's the central structure and the central problem with uh, having lawyers regulating lawyers. One of the things that the legal ethics rules uh, attempts to do with lawyers is to make sure that lawyers are following certain minimum standards of conduct in order to protect client's interest against lawyer overreach. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I read a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out, one titled The Sled and the other How to Get Sued. Well, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Blue Jay Legal. Blue Jay Legal's AI-powered foresight programs accurately predict court outcomes and accelerate case research by using factors instead of keywords. You can learn more at bluejlegal.com. That's blue, the letter J, legal.com. Bluejlegal.com. Well, legal ethics is defined as the minimum standards of appropriate conduct within the legal profession. Upon their admittance to practice, new attorneys agree to abide by their jurisdiction's ethical rules. For most states, this means upholding some version of the ABA's model rules of professional conduct, which prescribes standards of legal ethics and professional responsibility for lawyers. However, and despite the existence of these rules, all lawyers' agreements to follow them as well, violations of the rules are not exactly uncommon. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll explore legal ethics in today's world, the value of adhering to ethical rules, and what lawyers can do to maintain the reputation of the profession. To help us explore this topic, we have two great guests for you today. First up, we have Deborah L. Rohde, the Ernest W. McFarland Professor of Law and the Director of the Center on Legal Profession at Stanford Law School. She's the founding chair of the Section on Leadership of the Association of American Law Schools and was the founding president of the International Association of Legal Ethics. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Thanks for having me. And our next guest is Scott Cummings. He's the Robert Henningsen Professor of Legal Ethics and Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law, where he teaches and writes about the legal profession, public interest law, and social movements, as well as community economic development. Scott is also the Faculty Director of Legal Ethics and the Profession, known as LEAP, a program promoting research and programming on the challenges facing the contemporary legal profession. Welcome to the show, Scott. Delighted to be here. Well, Deborah, let's start with you. If you could kind of just give us a maybe a little bit of a broader definition of legal ethics and legal responsibility than I did in the intro. Well, the state courts set ethical standards uh, for lawyers practicing within their jurisdiction, and they will also allow legislators to um, enact statutes that the courts view as consistent with their own regulations. And the central problem with that system is that it turns out to be lawyers regulating lawyers. Most state courts defer to the organized bar. The ABA, the National Bar Association, has set the standards um, that provide a model for various states to adopt. And most states have adopted those in pretty much 
um, the form that the ABA recommended, although with some modifications in, in certain hot button areas. But really, state courts are quite dependent on lawyers, both because um, lawyers support their campaigns, they provide uh, recommendations, endorsements, and campaign donations, and state court judges are members of the profession. Most of their colleagues have always been lawyers, so they tend to resolve all doubts in favor of the profession. And the problem comes in when the profession's interests aren't entirely the same as those of the public. Uh, so you have standards that are pretty much set at a very low level that is going to just prohibit the most egregious forms of misconduct. And um, it's very difficult oftentimes um, to get adequate enforcement of those code provisions because in most states the enforcement is controlled by the organized bar or agencies that are quite aligned with bar interests. So that's the central structure and the central problem with uh, having lawyers regulating lawyers. It sounds like it. Scott, what's the policy behind legal ethics? Well, I think there are a couple of different policies that um, Deborah highlighted. One, I think, central rationale is to protect clients. Uh, when we talk about uh, legal representation and professional conduct, the real risk is that we have uh, clients who have to rely on a service whose quality is really difficult for them to judge. Right? They have to uh, go to lawyers and depend on expertise when the layperson who is a client um, doesn't have an adequate perspective or basis to really evaluate those services and their effectiveness. Like when I go to the doctor, um, I, it's really hard for me to assess whether that doctor's recommendation is actually on point. And so one of the things that the legal ethics rules uh, attempts to do with lawyers is to make sure that the lawyers are following certain minimum standards of conduct in order to protect client interest against lawyer overreach. Um, I think the other uh, issue which uh, you alluded to in your opening remarks is that lawyers play a really, really important role in the overall function of our democratic system. They're literally responsible for upholding the rule of law in standing for justice. And so lawyers as a profession really have to be held to high ethical standards because they are so centrally important in how our government functions. And so those ethical rules are really designed in part also to uphold and uplift uh, the reputation of the bar in order to um, make sure that uh, people understand the centrality of lawyers in protecting the rule of law. Deborah, you were highlighting the issue of lawyers regulating lawyers. I mean, is, I know there's some civilian involvement in some states, but how do you go about educating them so that they're at least able to judge whether or not a lawyer is acting competently? Yeah, well, you have some non-lawyers on the bar disciplinary committees, uh, which is a good thing, except that they're often picked from lists that the bar provides or approves. So you're not going to tend to get uh, flaming consumer advocates um, as the lay members. And of course, they're generally a minority of, um, of those on the committees. The actual drafting of the rules, however, generally doesn't have any lay representation. The commission that drafted the model rules of conduct that most states use um, for their own code structures and designs didn't have any lay people, and the, um, there isn't an established mechanism for, for getting lay input into the development of 
uh, bar ethical rules in most jurisdictions. And occasionally when the public is asked to comment on something as it recently was in California on rule reform, the public has no idea what the issues are um, and no way of really knowing. And so surprise, surprise, 98% of the comments that came in were from lawyers um, who mainly didn't like any of the sort of um, public oriented changes. So there's some structural impediments to making the system work better. And Scott's certainly right that it's an enormously important way of making our democratic system work because courts act as uh, checks on governmental overreach and an independent legal profession that abides by high ethical standards is really critical to the, uh, to the functioning of the system. And also, lawyers set the rules who determine who can provide legal advice and assistance. And oftentimes, there are rules that favor giving a monopoly to lawyers, even in cases of routine services where the public might benefit from having a wider choice of, of service providers who are expert in discrete uh, fields but don't have to go through all the hoops that lawyers do in order to um, become a practitioner. Scott, what do we find are the most common ethical violations? What are the consumers complaining about? I mean, by far the most common ethical violations are in the category of lawyer neglect and financial abuse. And so neglect are things that raise sort of basic uh, incompetence or negligence issues, like lawyers uh, miss deadlines, uh, fail to file motions, and result in injuries to the clients. And so if you look in California and across the country, people have studied this issue, find that those kinds of complaints uh, rise to the very top of the list in terms of the uh, ethical misconduct of lawyers. Um, financial abuse is stuff like lawyers uh, charging too much for their services, uh, failing to return client retainers or settlement funds, or otherwise misappropriating funds uh, from their client. And those, unfortunately, are also very high on the list in terms of uh, ethical misconduct of lawyers. Um, one thing to note in terms of ethical misconduct and the types of rule violations that we often see that lawyers engage in is that it's not evenly distributed. In other words, um, small and solo practice lawyers are much more likely to be found guilty of ethical misconduct than their large firm uh, counterparts. And that's not just because they are routinely more guilty lawyers. Um, it's because they often lack the infrastructure and support to really manage a lots of the uh, law practice management that can often result in ethical violations. So I think uh, when we think about the prevalence of ethical misconduct and where it gets targeted, we really need to be mindful of equity and ethical sanctions. Deborah, what are the law practice management things that can be put into effect that could help solo and small practitioners avoid this kind of malpractice issue? Well, for example, um, ticker systems that alert lawyers when um, deadlines are coming up, some kind of a backup system if a lawyer gets snowed with some competing calls on uh, his or her time at the same moment. Big firms usually have ways to cover for that. Also, a large percentage of uh, problems arise from lawyers, substance abuse, and mental health problems. And we really need better ways to provide assistance for lawyers who are struggling. 
Um, also, malpractice insurance would help a lot. You know, some disciplinary systems don't even cover sort of routine overcharging or minor neglect complaints on the theory that clients can have a civil malpractice liability and sue for damages. But that turns out to be a pretty expensive process, and they have to hire another lawyer, which if they've been burned once, they don't necessarily want to do. And unless damages are pretty clear and pretty substantial, and the lawyer has malpractice insurance that will cover it, it often isn't worth it to to sue the individual lawyer. Estimates vary, but only about half of lawyers carry malpractice insurance. And as you might imagine, the ones who don't have it are the ones who need it most, who are most likely to be sued. They're the ones sort of at economically marginal levels. So it would be better if all states required lawyers to carry malpractice insurance and set up a kind of public fund to make it reasonably cost effective for them to do so. The one state that's done it finds that lawyers like that pretty well. So that's an obvious area where we could improve public protection and also give lawyers more incentive to avoid the minor levels of disciplinary violations or malpractice that we now see. Those are great ideas. But before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear from a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Predict legal outcomes with Blue Jay Legal's Foresight Platforms. Using AI to analyze thousands of cases and administrative rulings, Blue Jay Legal can predict with 90% accuracy on average how a judge would likely rule in your case. Plus, you can research by factors and outcomes to find the relevant cases in seconds. Stay ahead of the curve and learn more at bluejlegal.com. That's blue, the letter J, legal.com, bluejlegal.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Deborah Rohde. She's the Ernest W. McFarland Professor of Law and the Director of the Center on Legal Profession at Stanford Law School, and Scott Cummings, the Robert Henningsen Professor of Legal Ethics and Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law. We've been discussing legal ethics, the ABA rules, professional conduct, and maintaining the reputation of the legal profession. And Scott, right before the break, Deborah was talking about insurance and it's interesting that there's not a universal requirement for carrying insurance. It's almost like the uninsured and underinsured motorist coverage we see on automobile insurance. And there's also no state fund that's readily available, at least here in California that I know of. Can you talk about what state funds are, might be available and, and what kinds of insurance issues come up for lawyers? Well, I mean, I think Deborah laid it out really nicely. I, I think, uh, you know, the bar does have access to interest on client funds um, that gets that gets allocated toward uh, supporting uh, legal aid and other organizations that promote access to justice. Uh, we might imagine a system in which uh, the bar was able to collect uh, um, more money through dues and other mechanisms that might be put aside, as Deborah indicated, in order to promote compensation for uh, clients who have been uh, wronged by lawyers and who don't have access to other sources of redress, like um, hiring lawyers and, and pursuing malpractice claims. And so I think um, putting aside money as sort of a victim compensation fund in some respects might be a good idea and might be a way of kind of covering at least at the baseline level uh, some more of the more egregious harms that, that clients confront based on uh, lawyer misconduct. 
Deborah, what happens in situations where one lawyer observes another lawyer's unethical conduct? I mean, there's a line between, you know, certainly litigation issues where uh, reporting someone to the state bar is a little bit dicey and other issues where it seems like it's warranted, especially if a judge uh, considers it and orders it. What, what circumstances surround getting reported to the state bar by other lawyers and judges? Well, alas, um, a lot of lawyers are very reluctant to report misconduct that they observe for a couple of reasons. Um, they are worried about retaliation. You know, they're also worried that it might seem hypocritical. You know, he who has never sinned should be the one to cast the first stones. And a lot of lawyers think that they're a bit for the grace of God, uh, go they. So um, that's a deterrent. And also a lot of them believe that the bar disciplinary process isn't going to be very responsive. And that is a major reason why judges don't report conduct that they see going on in their courtroom. And alas, you know, they're right. The disciplinary system often is uh, slow and the sanctions are really inadequate to deter most abuse. Um, You know, uh, less than 5% of the complaints that are brought result in, in any public discipline. So, you know, it's not a great system and we don't have a lot of reporting. And then it's true that a lot of the reports that disciplinary agencies get are either clients who are just unhappy with the results, so so they blame you know the lawyer, or it's in some instances an adversary who is unhappy with how a case has gone and and wants to retaliate uh, against the other lawyer. So. A lot of uh, complaints do need to be weeded out, but uh, there's some evidence that an independent oversight board that was controlled by the public, not the profession, would do a better job. And certainly Great Britain, Australia, who have those kinds of systems of co-regulation in which the bar shares authority with the public, do a somewhat better job in getting responsiveness to, to public complaints. If I could just add to that um, briefly, I think one of the important reasons that we have rules that require lawyers to report on other lawyers is because lawyers often have unique insights into other lawyers' ethical misconduct. They work with them in, in the same firm, for example, and therefore might be able to see things that clients might not be able to detect. I agree with Deborah wholeheartedly in terms of some of the barriers. I think some other things to think about are just the ambiguity of the ethical rules themselves. Uh, the rule that requires lawyers to report on other lawyers doesn't require it in every situation, but only when there is a substantial question about the other lawyer's fitness to practice. And I think that ambiguity in the standard often allows uh, lawyers to kind of wiggle out of responsibility to report. I think another dynamic that is important to mark is just that uh, if you are a subordinate lawyer, a junior lawyer in a law firm, and you see ethical conduct on the part of superiors, uh, there are massive deterrence to reporting superior misconduct in ways that we really have to think about how to protect those junior lawyers so that they can do the right thing and not feel like they are going to suffer reprisal. Is there a whistleblower law that applies to lawyers? That's an interesting question. There are um, whistleblower protections, but they're not evenly distributed across the bar. And so uh, some of the cases that have looked at uh, retaliation against lawyers for reporting misconduct of other lawyers and firms um, have given pretty broad and strong protections to associates who do that, who are retaliated against uh, for reporting and fired. 
but they don't give the same protections to partners who report on other partners. So I think there's some discrepancy there that still uh, is a deterrent, particularly, again, if you're at the top and you're looking out um, at other lawyers that are within your partnership, you have to be able to feel confident that by uh, reporting their misconduct, you're not going to lose your, uh, lose your position. Deborah, let's look at a couple of particular examples. You know, in what comes to mind immediately are the charges that are pending against Michael Avenatti and also the issues that have arisen from the two recent uh, Boeing 737 airplane crashes in foreign countries where there's been an outcry by local populations because of American lawyers contacting them to get representation to sue Boeing here in the United States. You talk about those or some other ones that you're familiar with? Yeah, well... Michael (laughs) Avenatti is kind of a poster child for what you don't want in a high-profile lawyer, and his misconduct is everything from, you know, sort of not releasing client funds uh, to public misrepresentations and fraudulent misrepresentations. So, you know, it's pretty egregious conduct that he didn't get called on until a lot of people had lost a bunch of money. Um, And I think that speaks to the failures we noted earlier in the disciplinary and malpractice systems. In terms of the mass solicitation of clients at disaster sites, ambulance chasing has a really um, bad odor, both among uh, the public and uh, the profession. It just looks pretty terrible when people are chasing victims. Uh, without any respect for sort of the, you know, time, place, and manner of the solicitations. And, you know, lawyers have even gone to hospitals and gotten referrals to um, to patients from ambulance drivers. So, hence the term ambulance chasers um, for lawyers who engage in, in this solicitation. And, and the bar has rules against it. What drives it, however, are practices by insurance companies that put pressure on accident victims to sign an immediate release for oftentimes very small amounts of money. And one of the reasons for the race to get people to sign on with lawyers is to prevent them from giving away their claims. And lawyers uh, for insurance company, well, insurance company employees who aren't lawyers aren't subject to the same anti-solicitation prohibition. So if we want to get rid of the practice, we should do a better job of policing um, insurance company solicitations in these situations. Scott, we talked a lot about some horror stories and some of the bad things, but what do you tell a young attorney starting out uh, in the profession coming into it? What, what, you know, how do you guide them through this, uh, this ethical morass that we're in? I have a few messages to my students uh, who are about to enter the profession. Uh, and one is really that ethics matters because in, in most places, clients and other lawyers are really just not going to want to work with you if you gain a reputation as someone who's willing to cut ethical corners. And so I want to stress to young lawyers entering the profession that lawyers do in fact gain professional capital credibility benefits over time by being the ones who stand up and do the right thing. Um, The other message that I often convey to my students is that good lawyers acting in the best of faith sometimes do bad things. And and this often happens because lawyers simply don't know what the ethical boundaries are. 
yes, there are some lawyers that are really bad, but uh, most who break the rules are not actually nefarious. They're under pressure, they lack support, or they're just not familiar enough with the rules to do the right thing. So I think when students are contemplating entering the profession, they often think, okay, this stuff doesn't apply to me because I'm a good person, I'm not gonna violate the rules. Um, I think that's wrong. Good people do violate the rules and you have to pay attention, you have to have an analysis and you have to be grounded in what the um, ethical rules are in order to uh, make sure that uh, you don't get caught in a bad situation. Um, the other thing I think I would say lastly uh, to folks that are just uh, entering the profession is that uh, we do have an amazing legal and political system, system, but it's very fragile. And I think we've seen that tested uh, uh, dramatically over the past uh, few years. Um, and it's based on respect for the rule of law and respect for each other. And it depends on people respecting norms of civil discourse. And I think all of this is in peril. And so I really believe strongly that um, for those that are about to enter, they really need to think about what their public responsibilities are to defend and restore faith in our democratic system. Deborah, I'd throw the same question to you. What do you tell your students as they enter the profession? Well, I agree with everything Scott said. I I often quote um, a famous British uh, commentator, G.K. Chesterton, who said that the problem with a lot of legal officials is not that they're evil or even stupid, it's just they've gotten used to it. And I think a lot of the problems that we've been talking about, certain um, neglect or minor fee disputes or lack of access um, to legal services for, for poor people are things that a lot of lawyers come to think of is, you know, just the way the system is. And over time, you know, they're viewed as either not a problem or not my problem. And I think one of the messages I try to give to people entering the profession is, you know, you have enormous opportunities to do good in this profession. And with those opportunities come some obligations. And those include thinking about the public impact of your own professional conduct, but also collectively the bar's professional conduct. And if there are things that aren't working well in the system, yeah, time is short, and I understand everyone's capacities for outrage are limited, but you know, I think this is a profession where you really can feel some sense of responsibility to leave the legal landscape a little better in some way than you found it. And I often say to students, you know, sort of one of the things that applied ethics professors often say is, if in doubt, think about the 60-minute test or the New York Times headlines test. How would this conduct look if it were publicly displayed and your mother was watching or reading about it? Would you be comfortable with what you're doing or what you're not doing? And if the answer is there's a little bit of discomfort, I try to encourage and enable them to think about ways of making the situation better. Good advice. Well, it looks like we just about reached the end of our program, so we'd like to take our moment here to invite our guests to share their final thoughts as well as their contact information. And Scott, we'll throw it over to you to finish up first. I think the final thought that I guess I would like to leave um, the audience with is piggybacks quite nicely on, I think, where Deborah just left off, which is that um, as we think about the future of legal ethics and lawyers' responsibilities um, in our current society, we have to think hard about how lawyers are going to respond to what's the central 
problem, I think, uh, one of the central problems facing uh, our, our society, which is inequality. And we have to have lawyers be more mindful of the discrepancy between access to lawyer resources at the top and at the bottom. Um, and I would like uh, the listeners to think about the public responsibilities of lawyers to really ensure access to justice, how we can collectively think about ensuring that uh, low-income people have uh, greater access to resources to be able to afford lawyers, uh, to be able to access lawyers in really critical life situations when they're facing evictions and other uh, incredibly traumatic events um, in a way that brings more balance and equipoise, I think, to a system that has uh, gotten thrown out of whack. Great. And how can our listeners reach out to you? Your listeners can reach out to me via email at Cummings, C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S, at law.ucla.edu. And that's the best way to get me. Great. Thank you very much. And Deborah, your final thoughts and your contact information. Yeah, it's uh, Rhodey, spelled like Rhode Island, R-H-O-D-E, at stanford.edu. And you know, I would echo um, Scott's point about access to justice. Um, in our current circumstances, about four-fifths of poor people don't get legal services for oftentimes extremely critical legal needs. And somewhere um, around a third of middle-class uh, consumers are, are priced out of the system. A couple decades ago, President uh, Jimmy Carter told the Los Angeles Bar Association that there was a problem in a system where 90% of lawyers were serving 10% of the public, those uh, who had deep pockets. And the situation hasn't much improved. Our funding for legal aid organizations is uh, shamefully low, and we do a much worse job than many other developed countries in equalizing access to, to critical assistance. So, you know, America likes to think of itself as a world leader in the role of law, which it is, but it really needs to do a much better job in making its legal system more accessible to those who need it most. Thank you. And, and thank you both for reminding us that ethics go far beyond what's written down in the ABA rules. It uh, involves our duty to society. Great idea. Well, for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. You can join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.